Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. So happy Wednesday. The latest infrastructure deal fell apart. I'm guessing that another one is on the way, or at least they will pretend that one is on the way. This does feel like we're in infrastructure week forever. It is sort of like Groundhog Day. Uh, I, the massive IRS leak makes for a good story, although people kind of wonder uh, how uh, how much information, what this breach of the IRS uh, privacy laws, what it actually means. Uh, the the former guy down in Mar-a-Lago is cheerleading for cancel culture. Literally, uh, the idiocracy is spreading around the country. That's separate. And in Congress, I. I would argue, whiffs on January 6th. Um, and meanwhile, we actually had real elections. We had primaries in New Jersey and Virginia. We had a lot of things actually going on. So uh, we are pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Skelly of 538. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, we want you down because we, we wanted you on because we want to break down these numbers, what happened in Virginia, what happened in New Jersey. Um, uh, you have a really interesting piece about polling, about what Americans think about bipartisanship, what they mean by bipartisanship. And I'm sure that because you guys at 538 are really like serious, deep thinkers, that you didn't want to come on a podcast just to make fun of stupid people, right? <laughs> uh I mean, look, everybody enjoys doing that a little bit. But, okay, so uh, I have some bad – because if, if that was the case, I had some bad news for you. So <laughs> we, have, we have to <laughs> – I'm sorry. I don't mean to start every single day this way, you know, but I – you know, yesterday we started off with Charlie Kirk talking about how there were 15, you know, nations in the world in 1945. I, I'm guessing he meant the members of the United Nations, but, but whatever. Um, did you happen to catch – the Louis Gohmert uh, question that he asked uh, during a hearing. Okay, now, I, I understand that this is low-hanging fruit. Louis Gohmert is notoriously the stupidest member of, uh, of the U.S. Congress. And he, he, this is during a – this is one of those virtual hearings on climate change. And I kid you not, this actually happened. This is Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert. And I understand from what's been testified to the Forest Service and the BLM, you want very much to uh, work on the issue of climate change. I was uh, uh, informed by the immediate past director of NASA that they have found that the moon's orbit is changing slightly, and so is the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, we know there's been uh, significant solar flare activity Um and so is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun? Obviously, that would have profound effects on our climate. It would. It, 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 it would. J just asking questions there. Now, that there is some speculation that I see on, on the internets that perhaps this was Louis Gohmert's very, very dry humor. Um, this is the speculation is being pushed by people who've never actually met or listened to Louis Gohmert. So, Jeffrey, it this 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 would actually affect the climate, though, wouldn't it? If we could do this, well, I I mean, I I think the main thing I'm struggling with is how exactly you'd go about doing that. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, if 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 he is serious, uh, what what sort of incredible undertaking would, would have to happen, you know, some sort of like large explosion of some mm. kind, some sort of wind sail for the entire planet or just the moon. I mean, I'm just like 
The wind sail. That's a good idea. You know, or, or I guess it would be like a solar wind sail to be more precise. Uh, could the right? UFOs help us with this? Now, now that we're talking about UFOs, is 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 there somehow can we connect the dots with the UFOs? You know, and of course, remember we until very recently had a president of the United States who speculated about the possibility of using nuclear bombs to uh, deal with hurricanes. So again, we're just asking questions. Can we, we need to be bipartisan today. I understand we need to be bipartisan because this this did remind me. Louis Gomer's a Republican. This reminded me of uh, Georgia Democrat Hank Johnson's uh, trenchant question um, a few years back. Remember, remember Congressman Hank Johnson? Let's play the question that he asked a a um, an, 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 an admiral of the Navy who was testifying before his committee. Yeah, my, my fear is that uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. He's, of course, referring to Guam. So, Jeff, have you ever been to Guam? You know, I have I've, not I've, been I've, to Guam. I've, no. But have you ever worried about whether or not Guam would be so overpopulated it would tip over? Do you ever worry about that, that, that we could have an island, like, you know, a whole, you know, the whole island actually tip over if you put too much stuff on it? No, uh, that is not a concern I've ever had. And I enjoy the fact okay. that uh, the admiral started out by sort of saying, uh, that's not a problem we've anticipated. Very, very, uh, <laughs> a very polite we'll, answer. Yeah. Yes, we'll, we'll get back to you on that, Congressman. We, we really seriously do not anticipate that Guam will tip over. Okay, so just, just just one more. In the state of Ohio, they had a legislative hearing on the questions of vaccinations and whether or not vaccination should be required or whether we should ban the requirement of vaccinations. Whatever, it's really kind of not the point. And uh, one of the one of the people who was testifying um, had this observation about vaccines. This this actually happened in the Ohio legislature. Now we're all kind of um, hypothesizing. I mean, what is it that's actually being transmitted that's causing all of these things? Is it a combination of the protein, which now we're finding has a metal attached to it? I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the Internet of people who've had these shots and now they're magnetized. They can put a key on their forehead. It sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them and they can stick because now we think that there's a metal piece to that. There's been people who've long suspected that there was some sort of an interface yet to be defined, an interface between what's being injected in these shots and all of the 5G towers. Uh, Not proven uh, yet. No. But we're trying to figure uh, out what is it that's being transmitted to these unvaccinated people. This is actually worse than it sounds because this woman who is testifying before the Ohio legislature is a woman named Sherry Tenpenny, who is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. She's an osteopath, a big anti-vax activist, has written four books opposing vaccination and has been the go-to anti-vax spokesperson for Josh Mandel, who is a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate. So this is not just some random woman that showed up at the hearing. This is somebody who has been touted by one of the leading candidates for the United States Senate, Josh Mandel. Her name is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, and you cannot make this up. I'm actually sitting here trying to do this. I'm trying to put my keys on my forehead, and they're not sticking, Jeffrey. So I don't yeah, know if that uh, constitutes evidence. Me yeah, me neither. Um, as a vaccinated uh, person, I'm not having that problem. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that 
you know, I've become very interested in QAnon, uh, the QAnon <laughs> conspiracy over the last year or so. Basically, ever since Marjorie Taylor Greene entered the the political realm, I was like, I really need to learn about this now. And uh, this sort of uh, just th- th- these kinds of statements and beliefs uh, really just come out of that sort of thing. Uh, it's 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 kind of incredible. It's also very depressing. Well, but she saw it on the internet. I mean, she saw it on YouTube. I mean, it's, this is this is this is a real thing. And again, it's I I don't know. The, we, I kind of have a joke with some of my well. The, <sighs> When, when I used to do a radio talk show and, and people would call up about various things, the phrase, I've done my research, Charlie, I've done my research, was always followed by some batshit crazy conspiracy theory. I don't know what it was about that particular phrase. People see something on YouTube and they go, okay, this is what's going on. This is the real, this is the secret truth. See, I guess part of, you know, I'm playing this, you know, we played Louis Gohmert and we played Hank Johnson and then this, uh, the, the woman from from Ohio and just, you know, number one, don't try this at home, putting, you know, keys on your forehead or, you know, hoping that you're going to be able to, uh, you know, save your keys that way. But n- there's nothing that prevents this woman from running for and being elected to Congress. <laughs> she could be two years from now. She could be a member of Congress. She could be a committee chairman the way things are going right now, be- because the fact that she believes those things is not disqualifying for much of the electorate, as you have noted. Jeffrey. Right. Uh, the, Jeffrey's the, thinking, know, I have to actually answer these questions. I have to talk about no, this. No, no. What, what, what did my PR people get me into? No, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something that, I mean, it essentially is interesting because in the past, political parties had maybe a little bit more of a filtering process for candidates, you know, major leaders could encourage someone to run or discourage someone to run. Uh, and you know, there's not really that, that process anymore. You know, people can just sort of run and if they are popular enough or if they, you know, are talented enough at gaining, gaining, uh, support, they can win. Even if they do happen to hold, uh, very, uh, odd, (laughs) (laughs) detached views or something. Well, actually, I'm leading up to a serious question, believe it or not. So we also have this new Politico morning consult poll out that uh, that asked people about the this this fantasy that Donald Trump will be reinstated as president in August. And according to this poll, they find 29 percent of Republicans, nearly one out of three Republicans who think that, yes, it's, it is possible that Donald Trump will be reinstated. Uh, they believe he will be reinstated in August, which raises the question, Jeffrey. And I guess the, here's because we get these crazy numbers, you know, 53% of Republicans think that Trump is a legitimate president. You, you study polls and public opinion all the time. This is actually a serious question. How much of this is real? And how much of this is just people answering the pollster questions, sort of signaling their identity, just throwing the shit up against the wall. I mean, you know what I'm saying here? I mean, how, mu- how much of, of, of these, how much does this reflect actual belief as opposed to just people striking an attitude and maybe even trolling the pollsters? What do you think? Right. I mean, that's actually a very difficult question right. uh, to know for sure. You know, uh, 29%, you know, it's quite possible that a significant share of that 29% truly does believe that. Um, there's certainly a, a conspiracy theory out there that's being pushed. Um, you saw it at like the 
uh, it was being called the QCon, like the QAnon conference uh, last weekend or the weekend before, um, where this is this is there's a strain of thought out there that this is going to happen, uh, that, that Trump will be reinstated. So I, I'm sure that a significant percentage of that 29% do actually believe that. But some of it may also be wishful thinking. It may be, as you said, uh, you know, sort of saying, well, I like Trump and I hope this is true. So I'm going to say, yeah, sure. Um, it's it, So it's difficult to say for sure. But I think when you see a number like 29% of Republicans, on the one hand, that's very far from a majority. So clearly not everyone is, right. is sort of buying into this ludicrous notion. But it also does signal that a not small share of people do actually believe this sort of thing. Um, so that's sort of my general takeaway from it. Okay, so uh, let's flip around. So we we actually had elections yesterday in uh, or primaries in, in New Jersey and in Virginia. In New Jersey, the headline on uh, the Politico story is Trump backers lose big um, in the you know race for governor GOP nomination in New Jersey. So tell me what what you were watching in New Jersey and Virginia, and what we now know because we're a lot smarter because we actually have the results. Sure, it always helps to have the actual numbers yeah, at the no. end of the day. It almost um, feels like cheating, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with the New Jersey race, you had sort of gradients of Trump support. You had the the, the guy who won, Jack Cittarelli, former member of the state legislature in New Jersey, had run in 2017. Uh had sort of a moderate profile when he was a member of the legislature. Um, he's socially conservative conservative on tax issues. And he did not like Trump. He actually called him a charlatan during the 2016 uh, presidential primary. Uh, so maybe not the best position if Trump has become very popular in the Republican Party. So Cittarelli has become more supportive of Trump, more supportive of his policies as time has gone on. Uh, but he is not, for instance, in the lone debate uh, in, New, in the New Jersey primary on the GOP side, he, he said Biden won the election. You know, Trump had a bunch of lawsuits. They got tossed out. The courts didn't find them, you know, didn't find evidence. Uh, and so Biden had won, whereas uh, one of his opponents, the only one who made the debate, uh, a guy named Hirsch Singh, um, who was basically all out Trump supporter, uh, said, we all know that Trump won the election. Uh, so you, Chitterelli is, is in some ways uh, sort of more traditional Republican, but pro-Trump in, in terms of a number of policies. And then you had Singh and another candidate, Phil, Phil Rizzo. Rizzo actually finished second uh, in the primary and Singh third, who were both much more vocally pro-Trump, uh, asserted you know conspiracies and falsehoods about the election result, about fraud. Um, uh, Singh, even in that debate, called Chitterelli a, a Cheney Romney Republican uh, the type who stabbed Tr who the type who stabbed Trump in the back uh, was his, roughly his quote uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, so you had that sort of dynamic and I do find that headline interesting uh, at the end of the day it looks like Chitterelli is going to win with about half the vote uh, he's at 49 percent uh, according to the New York Times and I'm not sure how much is left out uh, in terms of the votes remaining to be counted and the other two candidates who were notably pro-Trump added up to about 47, 48%. Mm -hmm. Now, if it had been a head to head race between Chitterelli and one of those candidates, Chitterelli probably would have won. Uh, but nonetheless, I do think the fact that Rizzo and Singh got, you know, 47, 48% of the vote, you do see a pretty significant, you know, very firmly pro-Trump constituency there. Uh, even yeah. in a, a, you know, a blue state, 
like New Jersey, you know, the, the fact of the matter is Republicans anywhere are pretty pro-Trump at the end of the day. They are in, you know, but but at least the 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 least woolly guy won that primary. OK, so let's talk about Virginia. The Republicans didn't have a primary. They had a convention. Um, but the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, won rather easily in the Democratic primary. He were you, were you a little bit surprised by how easily he won the margin. Uh, I think to some extent I was a little surprised by the margin. I, I think part of that just came down to the fact that the little polling that we did have um, put McAuliffe sort of close to 50 percent, uh, clearly in the lead. I think everybody expected him to win fairly comfortably. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like the undecideds did not end up mostly going to other candidates. Uh, a large chunk of them also went to McAuliffe. So that's how he got to 62 percent or so of the vote. Uh, so in terms of the the sort of magnitude of his win, it might have been a little larger than I expected. Nonetheless, it was sort of obvious that he was going to win because opposition had not coalesced around one candidate. Uh, and I think that was a, a real challenge for, for the other uh, – basically for anyone who opposed McAuliffe was that it, there was no one candidate who sort of broke out – uh, from the rest of the field to become maybe a challenger from McCall's left. And I think also another factor there is that, look, Virginia is a pretty establishment-friendly state on the Democratic side of the aisle. Uh, we saw Biden comfortably win it uh, in the presidential primary. Clint Hillary Clinton won it in 2016 rather easily. Ralph Northam won in a head-to-head -head race in 2017 against Tom Perriello in the Democratic primary, ended up winning by 11 or 12 points. Uh, so the state... Definitely. In every one of those cases, you're talking about sort of the more establishment friendly candidate winning. And so McAuliffe winning in this way uh, sort of fits into that. And you saw that down ballot, too, in Virginia in that uh, a state delegate, Hala Ayala, won the lieutenant governor's race. Now, that was a much more crowded affair, um, but she ended up winning and perhaps by a lot more than I think anyone might have thought. Hmm. Um, uh I mean, she got 39%, but there were there were six active candidates in the race. So uh, it was it was a, a, a crowded race. But then also Mark Herring, the incumbent attorney general, uh, defeated Jay Jones. Uh, and so Herring's seeking his third term as attorney general. So I think the results reflect that pattern in Virginia politics. I mean, I think progressives have been making some progress in Virginia uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle. But at the same time, it's still a state where sort of center left is the the name of the game in the in the party as a whole. Well, that was what I was going to ask you next because you know once again we saw that the Democratic primary electorate did seem to be more centrist as opposed to uh, progressive. The, the 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 centrist did well yesterday uh, as opposed to the the Democratic socialist types. Yeah, in fact, actually, what's interesting is that Lee Carter, uh, who ran for governor, he's a, a member of the House of Delegates, um, only got about 3% of the vote. He finished last in the five-person field. But in Virginia, there's a, a quirk in the law that permits someone to also seek re-election to their, their seat in the state legislature while also seeking a statewide <laughs> office. And Carter ended up losing his primary, in fact. Uh, and so he lost so he lost renomination for the House of Delegates. And that it's interesting because Carter is a Democratic Socialist. He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, so um, his defeat, I think, will be taken in some circles as a as a sign of of maybe that that approach not not working as well. I think there are other things that were also going yeah. on there. Uh, Carter's from a district that is um, has a very large Hispanic population. You know, anyway, I think there's some local factors there that will also play into it. 
All right, let, let's shift to uh, to Washington politics, because obviously uh, you had a piece last week uh, talking about uh, bipartisanship and how people really feel about it, which, of course, is topic number one, given the uh, number one, the, the the announcement by Joe Manchin that he's not going to support the the filibuster. Number two, the breakdown of the, the, the talks that had been going on about a, a bipartisan infrastructure package. So I guess the question is, everybody keeps talking about bipartisanship, and it comes back to the question I asked you about polls before. Is this one of those issues where everyone says they're in favor of bipartisanship, but nobody really cares that much? I mean, what is what is your sense? Because, I mean, is, is this one of those things that politicians feel they need to give lip service to? Or is it really important to voters out in the real world? I sort of want to go halfway on this or, or sort of straddle those two points. I, I think it's important. I mean, I think, I think voters want politicians to give lip service to the idea of bipartisanship. And I think in theory, they like the idea. It's like, well, this would be great. But it's sort of like if you line up an, a policy outcome that they find favorable, that their party prefers, and you say, in actuality, would you prefer the bipartisan policy outcome or the more partisan outcome backed by your party? People are going to pick the one backed by your party yeah. every time, even though they say – I mean that sound, maybe that sounds right. intuitive to people. But the fact no. of the matter is a lot of polls have shown people really – they say right. when asked that they like bipartisan outcomes. But if you right. actually test out their sentiments at the end of the day, they prefer those more partisan ones. Yeah. It's when push comes to shove, the bipartisanship goes, right? I mean it's like it's – like, People are you're on the diet, but if you put a you know a bowl of marshmallows in front of them, they can eat the marshmallows. Uh, so the the Biden administration is trying to redefine bipartisanship. I thought you had an interesting point about what the polls are showing about this that that Biden the Biden folks are trying to say that uh, uh, something is bipartisan if uh, you know Republican voters or a significant number of Republican voters favor it. Um, uh, whereas most people seem to think, no, bipartisanship means you, you have to have Republican votes. You have to have the votes of the other party in the legislature. Is, is that an important distinction? I mean, again, this is one of those things where I, I, I kind of wonder whether or not this is sort of the thing that people say, because that does seem to be, I don't know, it seems to get a little bit muddled. You know what, you know what I'm getting at here? No, Absolutely. Basically, what the, the Morning Consult Politico poll found was that if you asked voters which definition best matched their interpretation of the word bipartisan, uh, only 10% said it involved getting uh, broad support from just voters or, or you know Americans across the political spectrum. Many more said it had to involve – basically, the other two definitions uh, involved at least some support from lawmakers from the other party. Uh, or for both parties, I should say. And so most people picked an answer that involved lawmakers, either lawmakers and voters or just lawmakers from the other party. So that's that's I think the the, the fact here is that more default bipartisan definition for Americans is something involving lawmakers from the other party yeah. supporting some legislation. So give me your sense of how important it is for Joe Biden to continue to at least look like he's doing this because he's under tremendous pressure from his own party to say, look, screw it. Um, McConnell is never going to go along. You're never going to get those votes. Uh, just just ram it through, uh, you know, on, on the narrowest partisan uh, uh, margins. Biden himself seems committed to at least continuing to try. So what is your sense? 
given his election, given his popularity and the basis of his support, how important is it for him to get a bipartisan win on, say, infrastructure? I guess it's a it's a situation where the, the maybe the course of how you get to eventual legislation, if it is passed, um, even if it is passed on a, a party line or if something were to happen to the filibuster, which seems pretty unlikely. But nonetheless, uh, I think Biden wants to appear as bipartisan as possible. And maybe he doesn't actually believe a bipartisan outcome will eventually happen. But I think he wants to take pains to appear bipartisan. And I think in some ways that's that's worked out for him because that morning consult Politico poll also found that Biden was viewed as the person who most sincerely wants bipartisanship in Washington when they tested him against just like the Democratic or Republican parties as a whole, uh, other leaders in Congress uh, from both both parties. So voters do inter- do view Biden as maybe the most interested party in terms of actually getting bipartisanship of, of major figures on the Hill so and in D.C. as a whole. Um, so I do think that that's important when you think about his campaign in 2020. You know, he talked about a lot about unity, working with the other side. Like, yes, if I get elected, I can work with Republicans. It's it's I, I think it's this interesting thing where I don't know if voters actually care about bipartisan policy outcomes, but they may care about hearing about it and having politicians who act in certain ways that that appear to be appealing to bipartisan I think sentiment, that's it. they no, want bipartisanship. I, I, yeah. I think that's I think that's exactly right. And, and that's that sort of, you know, split screen there, what they say and what they really what they really want. But I do think it's important to go through the motions. Like for example, um the these negotiations between the Biden White House and Senator Capito of of West Virginia have broken down, but he uh, Biden immediately turned to uh, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana to try to broker a, a different kind of a deal. And I, I, the smartest analysis I've, I've seen is that it's very important for him to continue these talks with Republicans because of he wants to appear that he's doing it to people like, uh, you know, Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin so that they, they you know, for them, it's imp- to get their votes you have to have some Republicans. By the way, did that sound legally convoluted? But again, it's part of that get caught trying um, whatever the the final result is so that you may end up passing this thing on a very narrow margin, but you have to go through the, at least the kabuki dance of looking like you're doing it by, in a bipartisan way. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly it. And you know, another little finding from that morning consult political poll that I think references this is that of voters said that they respected politicians more when they made efforts to get bipartisan support. And basically, Democratic respondents and Republican respondents answered almost exactly the same uh, overwhelming preference for this and that they respected it more. So, yes, uh, even if you're just doing a dance, uh, it it has some importance in terms of how I think voters, Americans as a whole, uh, perceive you. The problem, of course, though, is that, you know, for from the Biden White House point, point of view is he's got to keep looking over his shoulder at progressives in the House so that even though the dynamics in the Senate, um, you know, would suggest that there there is some sort of a, a centrist uh, compromise, he's got to be able to hold his support in the House as well. 
And it, it is interesting at the moment, the kind of the whipsawing. He's been very successful in keeping everybody in line. He has to because they have, they have no margin. But what, are, what is your sense that, that if Joe Biden comes out tomorrow or next week and says, OK, I have come up with a $1 trillion infrastructure package uh, that will get some Republican support, maybe he'll get five to seven Republican votes for it or maybe, maybe four or five, whatever. But $1 trillion Will the progressives think that he's caved in, that he's sold out, even though that may be the only way to get the package through? What do you think? Oh, I think it's possible uh, that you could have you know, some sort of rejection on the left. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's, it's one of the things where I wonder with infrastructure, you know, if we were talking about the COVID relief bill and there had been, I don't know, maybe, I, I guess it's just, I'm, I'm trying to think about like, Clearly, Americans have answered in polls that they are supportive of more infrastructure right. spending. That's like a real broad, seemingly easy thing uh, right. to find bipartisan consensus on, though it's not been possible to actually do it, apparently. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I'm just – I think it's possible, but I, I also don't want to underestimate you know, Nancy Pelosi's wrangling in the House. Yeah. Uh, she's been a pretty good wrangler over the years. So maybe a couple members end up voting against it and they squeak by. Uh, but maybe you also pick up, you know, the Brian Fitzpatrick's of the world, uh, you know, suburb, you know, the the handful of Republicans in the House who might say, oh, I actually might want to vote for this or like a John Katko or something from New York. You know, so so, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's possible you could see pushback on the left that that even reaches the point of people voting against it. But at the same time, um, I, I just don't. I would say that that might not cause it to fail in the end. See, this would be a huge win for Biden. Um, I, I think even at one trillion dollars, because you know, out here I'm, you know, in Wisconsin, out here in in the country, a trillion dollars still sounds like a lot of money. It really does. I mean, it's 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 not like hey, we're worth throwing peanuts. It's a freaking trillion dollars. And I think standing there in the rose garden and signing this would be a big win for for Joe Biden, which makes me wonder. Whether um, Republicans or not, the Republican leadership won't just go to the mat to say, uh, you know, screw even pretending to look like we're bipartisan. I mean, Mitch McConnell has obviously decided at some point in his career that he doesn't care about being bipartisan, that, uh, that, that his road to power has nothing to do with it. And that if he has to just simply say no and block everything, then he's going to do it. Right. So, I mean, it seems like that the Republicans have made a different calculation that they don't even they don't even have to be to pretend uh, to be bipartisan, or at least people like Mitch McConnell. You know, part of that may come from the fact that at this point, the Republican Party base is more conservative. You have fewer people who identify as moderate. See, Gallup does this polling like every year. They they check in to see how people self-identify ideologically. The Democratic Party is is actually majority has a majority of people who identify as moderate. Uh, and then a large chunk, obviously, identifies liberal. And then the Republican Party is much more conservative with fewer moderates. And so also this shows up in polling of bipartisanship. You do end up with slightly more Democrats saying that they do favor bipartisanship, that they that they want. Uh, the, for instance, Pew Research found uh, right before Biden took office that more Democrats were sort of like Biden, if he can – make progress in doing stuff with Republicans, he should do it. And more Republicans were like the Republican leadership in Congress should not do that with Biden, uh, you know, the, the inverse. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it also comes down to a, a little bit about the parties and their makeup, who their constituents are, who they're appealing to. 
So let's talk about uh, Joe Biden right now. Um, you're you're the poll guy here. Could, could you explain to me um, where his approval rating sits right now? Because I have seen it all over the map. Give me your best sense of what his approval rating looks like. Sure. Well, you know, my my organization, 538, we have an approval rating tracker uh, for Biden. And currently he sits at 53% in our average Um that has basically not changed since he took office. It's it's blipped. It's gone a little bit up. It's gone a little bit down. But it's hovered basically between like fifty two and fifty five percent, give or take a little. And I think if you took out just a bit of the noise there, it would be a flat line. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's indicative of a political environment that hasn't actually changed that much since the twenty twenty election, uh, in the sense that people are very much in their camps. They're not they're not moving around. Um, there's so far, at least Biden hasn't lost support from the, from the coalition that elected him at the same time, he hasn't gained over, he hasn't won over people who, who didn't vote for him in the first place, or at least if there's been trade-offs there, it's, it's equaled out. No, I, I think you're right here, but, but then how do you explain the, the polls that are getting a lot of traction, particularly in, in, you know, progressive media showing him that at a 60%. A sixty percent approval. I mean, I've, I've seen this that Harvard Harris survey. Um, I think the, the the Morning Console poll has them about sixty. But you you think it's fifty? That seems like a big gap. It does. Uh, it's interesting so far. We have a number of polls that are sort of at odds with one another. Now there are some methodological differences in how things are calculated for some of those polls. Some of them just actually only have two outcomes: uh, people either approve or don't approve, or disapprove, I should say. Or in some other polls, uh, people can say they don't know, and you end up with you know fifty three percent saying they approve, forty percent disapprove, and then the you know the other seven percent say uh, they're not sure, they don't know. Um, so we try to sort of model those responses, uh, knowing that there are different methodologies, and come up with this average. But yeah, I, I agree that you do have sort of an interesting uh, split in terms of the polls that we're seeing. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm honestly not sure yet, and I think it's going to yeah. take a little more time to see where no, all I, things work out. I, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it is that weird situation where I, I think people are still in the kind of the Trumpian hangover, and they're just sort of glad that Trump's gone, but I don't know how it sorts out. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, Kamala Harris. She had a terrible day yesterday, and I know I'll get some blowback on this, but um, she, uh, you know, it starts off with her on the Today Show, um, where she had kind of a bad exchange with Lester Holt, and then I don't think it got any better with her presser in Mexico City. Let me just play for you a little bit of the the back and forth where uh, L- Lester Holt is pushing back on her on whether or not she has uh, visited the border. Here's uh, Lester Holt and, uh, and Kamala Harris. We've been to the border. So this whole, this, whole, this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm- Jeffrey, this, that just wasn't very good. I, just, just, your, your thoughts about it? Because, I, you know, she kind of reminded a lot of folks yesterday why her presidential campaign crashed and burned. I, I don't know whether there's a larger significance um, about how the vice president's doing, but that wasn't a good day for her, was it? Right. I mean, I think the headlines were, were generally negative. Um, the coverage of her was generally negative uh, sort of across the board. 
Um, and that's, you know, that that's not what you want uh, if you're the vice president and you're someone thinking about running for president, uh, potentially either in 2024 or further down the road. Um, well, especially so I, when, the, when, know, the, when the president himself is 100 years old, you know, so the, yeah, the, the yeah. significance of being vice president is a little bit magnified for her being Joe Biden. Obviously, he's not 100 years old. I know that. OK, I'm just exaggerating. But, you know, the, the point, especially if he's looking at a second term, you know, people want to at least feel comfortable. OK, she would be able to step in there. And if anything, I think she's just she has, she just has not found her rhythm yet. And I wonder whether that at some point that becomes a problem for Joe Biden. I guess it could potentially. Uh, you know, vice presidents have who've who've struggled. Um, I the first name that pops into my head is a very different vice president. Uh, but Dan Quayle was would, honestly a bit of a, a, a an anchor on George H. W. Bush. I'm not really sure how much it mattered at the end of the day for his his mm-hmm. political success and failure. Um, and I'm not sure that Harris actually matters that much for the political success or failure of Biden. But at the same time, if you're dealing with, you know, someone <laughs> misspelling potato or whatever, yeah. uh, it can become, it just become a distraction. It can become a distraction. And I think that that's, that's the, that's the best word. Okay. Maybe you could explain something else to me. I'm, I'm, I'm switching, I'm switching gears here now because I'm watching and I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this, but I'm watching the New York city mayor's race and trying to figure out who's ahead, who's behind. And they have ranked choice voting in this primary ranked choice voting. What does that, now this is really wonky now, what does ranked choice voting mean from a polling point of view? Because I've seen a lot of people say, you just can't tell who's leading, who's not leading. The polls really don't reflect what's happening because of the ranked choice voting. So there's been a lot of moving around. Andrew Yang was ahead for a while and now he's not. What is your take on that? What What is the interaction between ranked choice voting and our ability to actually poll a race like New York? I think in theory, it shouldn't change things that much uh, for a pollster if they're going through the full process with respondents of, you know, okay, uh, who's your second choice? Who's your third choice? Who's your fourth choice? Do you have a fourth choice? You know, that kind of thing. And then going through and figuring out uh, the calculations there and how it would work out. Um, so I think in theory, it's not as much of a problem. However, I will say that there are, there are complications there. A lot of pollsters don't, haven't, had to do ranked choice voting polling before, um, so that's a consideration. It does create a longer poll uh, when you're when you're asking respondents, uh, which could lead to uh, more respondents dropping out. And at the same time, I think the other thing is that knowing second, third, fourth, fifth kind of choices is that those can fluctuate, especially in a primary. I mean, primaries are already more uh, volatile to begin with. Uh, you know, because in theory, a Democrat is going to like. Most of the Democrats, to some extent, you know, maybe they dislike one more than the other, but maybe there are a few that they sort of have mixed feelings about. And maybe, you know, when they're talking to the pollster, they rank one second. But then when they get to the you know polls on Election Day, they decide to pick somebody else's second uh, who from kind of a, a middle of, of the candidate group. So I just I think the, that's a challenge. And that actually has more to do with just the way primaries work than necessarily the ranked choice voting uh, part, or maybe because it's ranked choice voting, that problem of that volatility actually gets magnified a little because you have to figure out uh, how people actually rank things. Yeah, I think this is just uncharted territory, even thinking about you know, whether people, there's gamesmanship, uh, strategy, all sorts of things. Is ranked choice voting, do you think, is is it a, 
isn't an effective uh, response or cure for the kind of polarization that we've seen in the primaries? I know you've had a discussion about are our, is the primary system uh, broken? Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking around like, what is it going to be? What is it, will it take to break this tribalization? And ranked choice voting you know, seems to be coming up with increased frequency. What do you think? I do think that there's reason to believe that ranked choice voting can reduce negative campaigning. Um, I think there is some evidence for that because, you know, just slamming your opponent uh, could actually lead people to dislike you. I mean, we know that the moment someone goes negative, yes, they might end up hurting the candidate they're going negative on, but they can also end up looking bad. Uh, and people sometimes react negatively to candidates going negative. Uh, so that that lies out there as a potential benefit, and maybe you you reduce the sort of the negative mm. tenor of things. And I think in a general election context, uh, that's actually where that could be more important. Uh, if you have ranked choice voting and the the two candidates, you know, Republican Democrat, don't they, they want to go after each other, but they have to be careful about how they go about e- after each other. Um, because maybe there are a few voters in the middle who will get turned off from one of the candidates if they go too negative or if they attack a particular thing. So I think that's a potential benefit of maybe lowering the temperature. But I also don't think necessarily that ranked choice voting is going to be a cure for all our ills. Um, I do think that an interesting thing going on is in Alaska, where they're going to be doing this top four primary. So you don't really have party primaries anymore yeah. uh, because of that. You know, like Lisa Murkowski and another Republican could advance to the general election, but because of ranked choice voting, they're not going to actually be spoilers for each other. Uh, they instead, you know, one might end up winning because they just have broader support uh, across the entire electorate at the end of the day. So that actually is going to be fascinating to me. And we don't really have, you know, that that's just di- a different way of doing it. And I, and I'm very fascinated just really interested to see how that pans out because that is different from sort of that straight party primary aspect. No, that's going to be extremely interesting. And this could have pretty significant effect if, if in fact you could get legislatures to adopt it. So, um, so what are you, uh, what are you watching this week? What are you working on right now? What's, what, what's on your mind? What, what's your next big question? Well, actually, uh, I'm in the process of, of editing a piece on approval ratings. I've been doing a lot of work on that uh, since right around the time Biden took office. Uh, and the thing I'm looking at is actually strong approval, strong disapproval. So mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to see about patterns in uh, sort of the intensity of dislike in particular uh, from the opposition party. So in this case, Republicans, Democrats for Donald Trump, Republicans for Barack Obama and Democrats for George W. Bush. I actually went back to George W. Bush when looking at this, um, and looking at sort of the first six months of their time in office, which has traditionally been known as the honeymoon period. Uh, it's a period where, you know, maybe you get a little crossover support. Uh, maybe, you know, you, you saw more Republicans approving of Obama during that time period, more Democrats approving of Bush, but that, has gone away to some extent uh, with Trump and to some extent also Biden. And so just looking at sort of the intensity of disapproval and how that reflects uh, the idea that if you're a Republican, you just sort of de facto will not like a Democrat no matter what, right? right? And vice versa, you know, Democrats not going to like a Republican no matter what. And you're not even going to give them a chance at the outset of their presidency, thus sort of ending what we've known about the honeymoon period, or at least 
much you know, reducing it significantly. So uh, that's that's sort of what I'm I'm looking at. So okay, this is interesting to me because I, you know, I'm trying to think back to the, you know, the the first month of the George H. W. Bush presidency. It seems like a completely different era. You know, really strong likes and dislikes weren't as strong back then, were they? I mean, it wasn't quite as intense. I just don't remember anyone being passionately pro George H.W. Bush. People may have disliked him, but he wasn't the kind of guy that's inspired the kinds of passions that we now, that are now routine. Am I wrong about that? Am I just, am I, am I just is this a nostalgic memory or were things a little bit, you know, more easygoing back then? I do think, uh, I'll, uh, to be frank, I, I did not look at data before George W. Bush, so I can't say with 100% yeah. certainty about what Clinton or George H.W. Bush mm. had. But I will say that the pattern from George W. Bush to Biden has been uh, more and more strong disapproval among people from the other party. So uh, it's, it's yeah, so there's been a, a rise in those numbers, a more intense dislike. Uh, so I would, I would guess, and I would, I mean, hypothetic, I mean, I would hypothesize that that was probably the case with, with Bush senior as well. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Just, you, you mentioned George W and I, I, I went to George H W. I was just trying to, you know, go back. So uh, Jeffrey Skelly, uh, Jeffrey Skelly is an elections analyst for 538 and an alum of the center for politics. Uh, you're big uh, in, you know, if, if you want to know anything about Virginia politics, uh, you would be the guy and you can find uh, Jeffrey Skelly's work at 538.com. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me the, the morning after uh, these two big primaries. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>